July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi, Rick. When last we spoke, it was the 11th day of your expedition in Niku, and you were anticipating the arrival of the second boat the following day. That's right. The second boat was due to arrive, um, bearing our longer cable for the ROV and the fresh vegetables. <laughs> right, so you Very could much eat. looking forward to. Meanwhile, things were going very well, especially down at the seventh site. We were opening up some features that we had excavated in 2007 to see if maybe we could find some more stuff. And we did. Really? We, were they adjacent to the place you had oh, already yeah, zoned we off? Had, we had set up these... these separate units in 2007 mm -hmm. usually based on a metal detector hit oh there's stuff here then uh -huh. you, you excavate that you lay out a, a two meter grid around it but in 2010 of course we're doing this massive excavation of the whole site right so you're going through those old units looking at them again ah uh -huh. And um, and did you have a map that noted that you knew you were going through places that? Oh you yeah, had? Okay. no, no, we had we had kept very close track of, of where we had dug before. Okay, oh, cool. But we were going through areas that we had already looked at and finding more stuff, which just meant we were doing a better job this time around. Right. We're finding things like more of the little pieces of rouge from the compact. Oh. Um, more more pieces of glass from broken bottles. It became very apparent that this uh, one fire feature was quite complex. There were pieces of uh, an amber bottle, which later turned out 
to be identified as a beer bottle, of all things. Oh, a so 19... from the Coast Guard? Well, no, not Coast Guard. That's the interesting thing. The, the, the Coast Guard guys did have beer, but it came in a, a different style bottle than the long-necked beer bottles uh, we're, we're used to. They were huh. they were sure, sort of stocky little bottles. We've got pictures of these guys holding a, oh. a bottle of beer. Huh. It was standard World War II issue beer. <laughs> but this particular bottle proved out to be... It's a 1936 American returnable oh, beer bottle. Really? You used to have deposit right, right, beer right. bottles. Yep. And so that was, that was pretty interesting. Where the heck did that come from? Yeah. yeah. Now, we don't know <laughs> that Fred Noonan had bottles of beer aboard... The Electra that wasn't not, on the list. It's not likely. <laughs> um, maybe it. Maybe it's something that was beachcombed by the uh, castaway. Huh. And any bottle would be valuable, but but this beer bottle had been standing up in that fire. Oh, and the bottom of it got melted, but the top didn't get heat damaged. And there was a green bottle that proved out to be uh, the same type of bottle that was used for a. 1930s product called um, St. Joseph's Bone and Nerve Liniment oh. or something. It, it, it's, it was a liniment. So, and it's a three-ounce bottle, hmm. like travel-size yeah. liniment bottle. Stuff that could also be used as, a, as like an insect repellent. Huh. So that was pretty. And that was also a burned bottom. No heat damage to the top and nearby had been this piece of wire that had been bent around in such a way that you could hold a bottle upright in a fire so it looked like somebody might be boiling water in a three ounce bottle well in a three the, ounce oh bottle definitely not, the not, beer not bottle of, but not a lot well, of water who knows what they were <laughs> but they were doing something with it, it yeah was, but we sterilizing still, it we we still at, at that point had no real theory about well where's she getting the fresh water to to boil if, yeah. if somebody is boiling water to, to purify it for drinking but we came up with an interesting uh, theory about that a bit later too so things are going well at the seventh site we're finding all kinds of cool little stuff most of it we can't identify bits and pieces of things there's piece of a, a it looked like like three teeth from a comb oh. uh, but not like a hair comb a, a heavier comb like maybe uh, something that, that a woman would use in her hair just to, to hold her uh, hair to up hold her hair oh, yeah. huh. but just three pieces of this little plastic comb thing hmm. and it's not something obvious that the Coast Guard would have or the native settlers. Either. Right, right. So it's just odd. When uh, we're, we're expecting the, the new ship, the second boat to arrive, and the plan was to shift the ROV, remote underwater vehicle operation, to that boat. Would that be easy? Well, did it have a lot of equipment on it, the it, Naya already? There was some. There was no equipment installed permanently on Naya okay, for that. Okay, so you could just it, it was carry a, it. Something that that we could move over to mm -hmm. another boat, 
and we thought the new boat would be better because it had a bow thruster on it. Ah, so it could be it's more stable. More stable. Yeah. Because Naya was having a terrible time because, you know, you have the sail up there and, and any breeze and it's, yeah, it's going to yeah. move around. Yeah. So uh, that that was the plan. This last day before the the second boat arrived, we had a bit of an adventure. Remembering that adventure is what happens when things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, adventure is bad. Okay. So we've got a full skiff load of team members, 18 people packed into oh. this skiff. And at that time, we had Naya moored off the northwest end of the island where there was a place you could moor it. But that puts you more than a mile away from the landing channel. Uh, so you've got a long skiff ride down to the landing channel. Was that because of the winds, prevailing winds? Because didn't you usually tie off the Norwich? We tie off the Norwich City that, would, that brought us in much closer. But yes, that, that depended on a steady east wind uh, to blow, keep blowing Naya back away. Mm. So you, you kept the... The, the the bridle lines to the Norwich City wreck tight, right? So you didn't move. So were you there the whole expedition? Was it on? Was the Naya moored on the north? No. Well, uh, we we moored up there anytime we could. Oh, okay. Because it, it was it was safer. You're not. Uh, you, you have to be constantly vigilant if you're moored off to Norwich City. I see. Because if the wind backs off or changes around. Suddenly, you're heading toward the reef, uh, and that's the worst thing that can happen. Yes, and you've got those reef. two, the two new captains too. Yeah, the two. Yeah. New... Hmm. So we we load up with the full team, eighteen people, headed for the landing channel. But it's it's a mile, hmm. and and it's it's a fairly choppy day, so we're kind of slogging along, and we get. About halfway, and the engine quits on the, oh. on the outboard, oh, no. and we're we're you know maybe a hundred feet off the edge of the reef, going along, and the engine quits. Oh jeez! It had been sounding kind of sick, you know, <laughs> and we were had been saying, looking at each other and saying, "I don't like the way that sounds," <laughs> but the crew member that was. Um, handling the outboard said no it's all right it's all right we kept going we kept going and then boom you know it quit oh. and we're looking at the waves the surf breaking on that reef edge and we're getting washed closer and closer to it and knowing that look if if this skiff goes up against that reef edge in this kind of surf it's gonna capsize it's we're gonna <laughs> oh, have no. 18 people in the water on the reef and um there are all kinds of guys here that are just waiting for something like that to happen you know? <laughs> guys meaning sharks in yeah. the water black oh. tip sharks jeez. Oh, so this is not good so the, they're working on the engine and pulling on it and trying to figure something out and finally get it to start but it'll only run it like idle so just oh, no. barely was we're it enough to make any headway yeah just <laughs> barely we're crawling along just enough to keep us off the reef <laughs> and uh that goes on for half a mile 
until we got to the channel, we got turned the corner into the channel, we got halfway up the channel, and the thing just seized up. Oh, I mean, it just, no. It was dead. Mm. But now we're halfway down the channel, so we can just paddle on down to the beach, and we're cool. And we were able to get the other skiff in and, and tow it back out and change out boards. All right. Oh. But it was... That's stressful. Stressful is the word. Yeah, mm. you'd think that. That was the morning's uh, excitement. <laughs> so first thing the next morning, here's here's our, our second boat coming over the horizon. Oh, that must have been a good sign. And there was much rejoicing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we transferred stuff back and forth. Uh, well, trans yeah, back and forth because we got our new cable. And Actually, the cable stayed on on the new boat because we we moved all the ROV stuff over there, right. and the vegetables came aboard. And then we took all the new people ashore, right. just to orient them. You know, here's your. Had any of them been? On any previous expeditions? No. So they were all No, they were, they were all newbies. Okay. All, and so they needed a, an orientation sure. to the island. And one of the people on the second boat was the second Discovery Channel cameraman. Ah. Who we had been assured was uh, highly experienced and very accustomed to expedition work. He had done a lot of work in Africa. Oh. And... This guy's really tough and and knowledgeable. Oh, good. Kind yeah, of guy we need. Yeah, sounded like he'd fit right in. And so we're getting ready to go ashore to show him around. And I'm looking at him because they're new people. I said, all right, uh, how much water are you carrying? Oh, I've got a liter in this uh, canteen. Okay, good. What, you, okay, you're good. And I, to the cameraman, he says, I'll be all right. Don't worry about it. Oh, uh, you sure? Not because a good sign. carrying water is something we always, always do on this. No, no, I'm, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Mm. Okay, fine. So we go ashore, and he had a bit of an agenda. He said, "Okay, the first thing I want to do, I want to do an interview with um, you up at the tomb of the." colonial officer that was here uh in Gerald Gallagher's tomb up in the old village right. he says yeah yeah that okay we can go up there we can do that well that involves a uh, pretty good hike through the coconut jungle right the and, bowling balls and uh, the bowling balls and the spiders and everything mm. and it's hot of course it's Niku and we get up to the <laughs> we get up to the tomb and I get set up. I said, I guess you want me to just stand here by the tomb. I'm, you know, you want to mic me? And, you know, he said, yeah, I'll do that right after I puke. Oh. <laughs> he went off and wrenched his oh, guts no. up. And we gave him some water. Look, <laughs> Niku, Niku's not Africa. You know, we don't have lions on Niku. But it's its own thing. It, oh. you, you've got to be prepared for it. And it takes some acclimation. You, you, you get used to it after a while. But when you're first there, it's, it's really tough. So you get a little bit of a lesson there. Yeah. That's okay. And we, we all uh, headed back 
headed down to the seventh site and continued our work down there. One of the interesting things we we're finding at the seventh site, so there's all these M1 carbine brass casings there because yeah. the Coast Guard guys were doing target practice. But we're also finding 22 brass, little, huh. 22 caliber brass. The, the U.S. military never issued 22 caliber weapons hmm. to the, the military. The Coast Guards didn't have. But Gallagher did have a Colt Woodsman 22 caliber pistol. We know that because it was in the inventory taken of his stuff after he died. Ah. So we know Gallagher had a 22. So this is certainly appears to be Gallagher down here. But what's he shooting with a 22? Really? It, it, it's odd. I don't have a good explanation for it. Is he shooting coconut crabs? I don't know. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, that's that was kind of odd. Now, it has been suggested that, well, did Amelia have a gun with her? No, she did not have a gun with her. Yeah, she uh, wasn't expecting she, they, to find herself had, anywhere like that. They had a signal flare pistol. Hmm. But that big, heavy um not, not, not a twenty-two, And, of course, we've seen no sign of such a thing there. And we're not even sure they had it with them on the flight to Holland Island. Although that seems like it would be, yeah, I don't know. Would you carry something like that? What would your use be for a signal flare? Well, you, you, You'd have to figure that if you had to ditch, go down, and you ended up in a life raft, then... You saw a ship near or on the sure. horizon. You yeah, some it might very well. Yeah, and but that, and that was probably the most the riskiest part of their crossing, right? They, they oh were, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. And there's all kinds of speculation about well, what would you bring on a flight like that? Would you take your parachute with you? Mm. Because we know she had parachutes aboard hmm. in Darwin, Australia. Do you carry parachutes on a flight that's going to be all over water? Interesting. Um, uh, under what circumstances would you abandon the aircraft rather than ditch the aircraft? I mean, hmm. Generally speaking, you stay with the airplane as long as you can make any kind of a forced landing. The only time you really want to get out of the airplane is if you've had a midair collision or a fire. Right. Then right. you so want it to couldn't get out. fly. But did they? They did have a life raft on board. No. Well, we don't know. But we know they did not have a life raft on the first attempt to fly to Holland Island when they wrecked the airplane in Hawaii. Right. That was in, there were personal flotation devices, but there was there was no life raft. Oh, huh. So what they had when they left Lay, nobody knows because right. there, was, there was no. But we do. Were they worried about fuel on that leg? I mean, would they have ditched equipment in order to carry more fuel? On oh the, yeah, on the, uh, so. the, that was the huge, huge deal right. in in Lay. She was, she she wrote about how we've we've gotten rid of everything we can possibly get rid of uh, to lighten the airplane because we need to carry so much fuel. So if they had parachutes, they might have gone then. Yeah. Uh, hmm. The other thing is, if they did have parachutes and they landed on the reef, and they want to make themselves visible. Um, to, so the logical thing to do is to take a parachute and spread it out oh, yeah. on the ground or in the trees or something. That's sure. something you could see 
uh, from, from a distance above, yeah. or uh, from an aerial search. So we're finding these 22 shells and we really, the, the Gallagher's the best explanation for how they got there, but we're not sure what the heck he was doing. We got the ROV rig all set up aboard the other ship and we had our longer cable and so they were able to, to go deeper. They What they found is there is a big shelf at a level of about 900 feet down. Huh. And that was interesting because that would be a good place to catch wreckage. Yes. And so they wanted to really work that ledge with the ROV and see if they could find anything. Because that, that looked like, yeah, th- this this would be a good place for wreckage to hang up. Sure. So we were kind of excited about that as a, a good prospect. Hmm. At the same time, uh, somebody screwed up. The cable, the umbilical for the ROV, there were actually two of them. Well, one of them was uh, the navigation cable, and the other was the power and video mm-hmm. cable. Well, the navigation cable with a transducer on it got fouled in the propeller oh, no. of the boat. And Did that render the whole project done? No. But Did they have what, extra? No, they didn't have an extra one, and what it meant was that we we didn't have end up having good accurate information of where the ROV was oh. when it saw something. You know, you've got this video hmm. and you see, but you don't have accurate information about where it was when it saw it. Wow, well, so that doesn't sound very huge drawback. Yeah. And we wanted the people who were living aboard the second boat to participate in our evening debriefings and team meetings. Right. How did you do that? Well, the only, all you can do is bring them over in a skiff. Mm-hmm. But the trouble is, that's at night. It's always going to happen. So you're doing it in oh, the dark. And you're... You've got two ships standing off the island. And sometimes with a sea running, it's, you know... Yeah. And you've got to get them off the one ship and onto the other in the dark. Mm. And these are all newbies. So we were pretty nervous about that. I bet. But they made out all right. We we transferred them that that first night. And they participated in the team meeting and got back home okay. Hmm. It was all right. But it was a little bit hairy. I bet, and that is risky. And a couple of these guys are major sponsors, so I'm, you know, I'm not eager to you don't frighten want them little. in the drink. I don't no. want to put them in the in the water. <laughs> with the second boat there, with the eight additional team members, we now have too many people to get them to the everybody down to the seven site in one load. So oh. we're having to do multiple loads which hmm. takes more time and more fuel and so forth but that's what did it take round trip to get somebody oh, from it's, Naya to... um well okay from Naya let's see assuming that uh, that you're down close uh, tied off to North City right it probably from from the time you put people aboard the skiff till they're standing on the beach at the head of the landing that's probably half an hour. 
Wow. Well, what if you had to go from the north end? How long did that take? Oh, that would Assuming double, double that. You're, you're probably a total of almost an hour. Wow. And uh, to have to do that and, twice. And then, of course, you're at the landing. You go across the island to the to Club Fred, where we right. kept the lagoon boat. Mm. And then the trip from Club Fred down to the seventh side is a good 20 minutes. Wow. It's... it's so far, it's, it's hard to remember how big that island is in that sense. If you're really? standing on the beach at Club Fred, you can't see the seventh side. You can't see the other end of the island. Wow. It's over the horizon. Huh. So, uh, yeah. It's, well, it's a, so what time would you start your day and what time would it be oh, when you usually, got to the... Uh, first load goes over the side about 7.30 as soon as it's light enough Everybody gets up, they have their breakfast, they get their gear up, and about 7.30, you put the first load over the side. And, and so it was getting hot by oh, the yeah. time you got to the oh, seventh yeah. site. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And it, it, at the seventh site, it's uh, usually over 100 degrees by 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, oh, gosh. So, yeah, it's, it's a long and dirty day uh, when you're working at the seventh site. We did get the ground penetrating radar down. The, the guy that, <laughs> the young volunteer that was operating the ground penetrating radar. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I named him Radar. Because <laughs> he kind of looked like the character. Did he really? Oh, that's and fun. I, he hated that. <laughs> really? No. I, <laughs> no, he, he didn't uh, appreciate that, so I I stopped after a while. <laughs> it, it was just too good to resist. You know? Well, how how was he doing? Working? Uh, well, Were he was getting... collecting. He was collecting data okay. with a ground penetrating radar, he, and he needed to collect the data and then go back and crunch it and do look at the numbers and and see what he thought might be worth. And he he had um, accurate. Uh, GPS locations for those for what he oh, was getting well, for you. Yeah, no, it was better than that. I mean, we uh, we we could physically mark the spot. You know, he he'd get down there. This this thing is on wheels, uh-huh. like bicycle wheels, right? Small bicycle wheels. And he wheels it along the ground, and he marks the places where he's getting readings. Okay, and physically mark them. He can also follow your grid that you had laid yeah. out before. Oh, yeah. oh good, good, yeah. okay. So hmm. we're curious to see what his data would reveal, but we didn't know yet at this point. I had people working in the in the Buka forest to see if crabs had dragged bones down into their burrows. The coconut crabs typically live in hollowed out bases of the big buka trees of the buka oh, forest. Uh-huh. Those those trees get huge and they have roots that are above ground, a lot of them, and, and those roots have big openings in them. Sure. So they have... It's like, almost like... Like chambers. <laughs> think to... of uh, Peter Pan and the Lost Boys oh. and <laughs> the living right. in... You know, it, it, kind of like that. Uh-huh. And that was a good job for the new people. I put them in there. I said, like, we need to check these burrows. Well, <laughs> um, they look at this and say, wait a minute. 
you showed us what a coconut crab looks like. These guys are big and ugly and they look dangerous. <laughs> and you want us to go... Get on your hands in, and knees and, and look. go into these... And I said, no, like, you can do it. Let me show you. And I, I knew where one crab lived. He used to come and um, hang out around us at <laughs> oh, lunchtime. No. <laughs> this, this is kind of funny. Our archaeologist had brought some plastic bones just to show us what, for example, a collarbone looks like, a clavicle. Oh, okay. And this is this is the kind of thing you're looking for. So we had this thing, and it was a plastic bone, and it happened to be laying on the ground at the where we ate lunch, and this coconut crab came and grabbed it. <laughs> and we took it away from Oh, well, that's disappointing. So I named him Clavicle. His name was Clavicle. <laughs> And I knew where Clavicle lived in the Buca Forest. <laughs> so I went in there and... Uh, you think they were beginning to question their uh, resolve about... <laughs> what am I doing when, here? Yeah. Yes, when you're yeah. so naming the crabs. Nobody said we were going to have to go in everywhere. <laughs> so, but I I went in and I actually grabbed crab, Clavicle and dragged him out to, to show him, first of all, that if you're careful you you can deal with a coconut crab it, they're not aggressive they're very shy i didn't hurt him at all of course I, i'd never do that but i i knew that I, if i took one particular leg he couldn't get me with the other claws right. and i brought him out and showed him to everybody and actually mark smith was shooting the whole i there's there's a thing on youtube oh, that's called crab funny. wrestling <laughs> that i do but it really wasn't as dangerous as it as it looks, and but they they still said no, we're we're not going to crawl in. Revolt! You do that. <laughs> we're not going to do that. But they they did other holes that obviously there was nobody living there at that time. They did check it up. Bottom line is we couldn't find any evidence that coconut crabs stash bones in there or anything else in their uh -oh. in their dens. Hmm. So. But one thing I did notice while they're working in there, I was out scouting around and I was out on the, the edge of the lagoon when a big rain squall came through. Oh. Just poured rain. Mm. And afterward, I noticed that there were puddles in the coral that's right along the edges of the lagoon. Uh, well, gosh, you know, if you were trying to get drinking water maybe you could collect water from these puddles. Ah. It would be hard. And the other problem is the, the birds are around here and they tend to poop in the puddles. And that would be no fun. I said, well, let me see how they're doing back in the Buca Forest. Ah. So I, I went back in the Buca Forest after this rain squall and I look around and there are all these big leaves from the Buca trees laying on the ground and they're kind of concave as they... And they're full of water. Oh. And some of the bowls in the exposed roots of the bokeh trees, as much as a cup of water oh, wow. in there. And then I'm thinking, yeah, we've found the remains of a very small bottle up at the seven site that had gotten broken, maybe shot by a Coast Guard. But if you had a small bottle like that, you could collect this water very yeah. easily after a rain squall. Huh and put it in another bottle and boil it in your fire. Maybe that's the system. Yeah, that's interesting. Eating. So it's all it's theoretical. It's a reason for a three-ounce bottle. Yeah, okay. Meanwhile, the ROV 
had come across a couple of man-made objects at about 265 meters down. Hmm. There was this length of rope or line of some kind, fairly lightweight, and then there was this little semicircular piece of wire, uh, only two or three millimeters in diameter, very lightweight, light enough that the ROV's thrusters uh, moved it a little oh. bit when I got close to it. Hmm. But these are the first man-made objects we had seen down there. Man-made objects are very rare. You get away from the North City wreckage and Man-made stuff on that reef is extremely rare. Wow. So we had good video of it. And so when we got back to the ship that night and got briefed by the ROV guys, and they showed us this, we came across this. What do you think? I said, I think we need to recover that that piece of wire and maybe the, the rope too. Let's, let's take a close look at them and see what we can learn. And... Okay. Could they find it again? Is that something? Well, that was the question. Right. You know? That would be the issue. But that that was what they were going to do the, right, right. the next so day. that's promising. Yeah. Well, okay, the next day we go to work, and we're moving people down to the to the seven site, and it's taking a couple of loads, right. as it always does. And I'm going down with the second load, and... We happen to have all the big dollar sponsors in that level. Okay, we're going mm -hmm. down the lagoon, and off there to the south, big black clouds. Another rain squall oh, coming. Wow. Big squall coming. Okay, well, you know, that happens, so it rains, you get wet. <laughs> and then we get about halfway down the lagoon, and the outboard quits. <gasps> oh, gosh. Oh, swell. And all we've got is one paddle. And oh, no. we're trying to figure out what's wrong with the with the outboard, and we reason that maybe uh, some of the silt in the shallower water, where you go uh, bring the boat ashore, got up into the engine and clogged the intakes. Yeah. So we're going to need hmm. to clear that out, but we can't do that out in the middle of the lagoon. And we we're trying to figure out some way to get it to shore before the rain squall oh. hits. We tried to rig some kind of sail with a tarp, and oh, no. that, that was like the Three Stooges. Man. It just <laughs> didn't work. And I'm thinking, this is swell. Yeah. I've got all my sponsors here, and they're about to get clobbered with it. And we did. I mean, we got soaked, and we were out in the middle of the lagoon. It was no fun. Well, and but as, I bet it's all part of the adventure they still part talk of the about. Adventure. Yeah. And mm. as it turned out, the problem was that the guy running the outboard had for, forgot that there was a second fuel tank. On board? Yeah. So, oh gosh. Yeah. So all, yeah. as soon as he just switched the fuel lines out, <laughs> boom, starts back up. Oh, okay. But you're already wet. Yeah, we're already wet. It's now June 9th. The currents and waves are too strong for the ROV to work. So they have to stand down. I took some of the new people out to the Nessie location out oh. on the reef and showed them that and that was that was good and <laughs> and you could get there safely well as safe as you can do anything on right. the you, you and you're walking around that reef you always need some kind of walking stick because 
The reef is slick. It's it's the expression we always use with it's slicker than snot. <laughs> and it, it, you and you don't want to fall on that no. coral. So you have uh, some kind of walking stick. And our new people had equipped themselves with walking sticks. But I hadn't. And I get ready to take them out there on the reef. I said, oh, geez, I need something. And I look around, and there's all this trash up on. And I found a fluorescent light tube that had, oh. that had washed up. I just grabbed that. Oh, Rick. <laughs> this, Did you think that was a good idea? Says, I can't believe you. He <laughs> says, look, this is working. I'm, I'm not going to break it. It'll be all right. I just need something to... So, yeah, I kind of reinforced the impression that Gillespie's out of his mind. <laughs> hmm. But, yeah, we we got out there and um, they saw what I was talking about. Yeah, there's a, a, a crevasse little canyon in the, in the reef edge here that could very well hang up a landing gear. This is probably where it happened, but there's certainly nothing here now. That afternoon, we went on back down to the seventh site, finding more stuff. I mean, these these people are working away, and they're finding all kinds of little stuff. Two more buttons. Ah. This is the third button. They're not all exactly the same size, and they don't all look exactly alike. So, what's going on here? Hmm. Uh, are there been just a lot of people here? And every once in a while, somebody loses a button? Or do we have one piece of clothing that is rotted away that has different kinds of buttons on it? Uh, uh, no way to tell. Hmm. One of the classic puzzles you run into, things that aren't immediately explainable, and maybe never explainable. Hmm. Our kite aerial photography team uh, were also at, at work that day getting really good uh, kite aerial photography of the site because we're we're getting close to wrapping up here and we want good photographs sure to later use for for mapping one of the things that was found at the seven site in these last days was a a small red bead and i mean tiny it's like a three millimeters in diameter. Oh, gosh. Tiny, and it had a hole through it. It seemed to be ceramic, and it had a hole through the middle of it, like it was once part of a decoration of some kind. Mm-hmm. But just one. Hard to hard to explain. But we're finding stuff that small. Really, yes, really that tiny part stuff. is amazing. The, yeah. That, yeah. That team must have been really good. Well, they were, they were paying close attention, and they're... They're they're really getting into it now because they're because they're, they're actually finding, finding little, things. They're, they're yeah. finding things, and, yeah. and we don't know what they are, but we've got a lot of stuff to collect and later research and see if we can find out about it. Right. Our uh, our GPR guy, radar, well, <laughs> formerly radar, <laughs> says, "Okay, I've identified these areas, and there were like three or four of them." Where there's something down here, you know, there's oh. got to be metal buried here, and uh, the ground's disturbed, and there's something there, and very strong. So we go to work digging them out, and digging in that coral rubble is oh. not fun. Thirty 
50 centimeters. We were talking 12, 20 inches. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing there. And you keep, there's nothing there. We said, what's going on? He says, I don't know. There should be something there, but there isn't anything there. Wow. And the best he was ultimately able, able to figure is because the coral rubble is so porous and it has gaps in it, pockets of air mm -hmm. that masquerade as to the radar as a thing. Really? As it turns out, coral rubble is just not something that you can examine with ground-penetrating radar with any <laughs> oh, reliability. No. <laughs> just, okay, so that doesn't work. Oh, At least we tried Well, it. you know that. Yeah, yeah. The ROV team's going to go back and get that wire and rope. Yeah, that's But they can't find it. Oh. They can't find it. Because we don't have a transducer. We don't right. have good navigation. We can, jeez. Oh, mm. We've learned a lot about the morphology of the reef and where the ledges are and where it's steep. We, we're able to map it quite well in a general sense. And we've got tons of great high-definition video that you of, can't of match. these lumps of coral. Yeah, but or, you don't know where they are. And you know, we, or, we can't relocate things with any reliability. We know in general where we searched. We know where the thing yeah. was, but in terms of specific locations, it was a it was a bust that way. So at the end of the day, we've got a lot of data recorded, and some of it not as specific as we hoped it would be, but we have found so much stuff, far far more artifacts than we really expected. Wow. As far as we know, still nothing that's diagnostic that says, oh, this could only be Amelia. Right. But we've got these bottles, and they're interesting, and we should be able to learn more about them. we got this little ointment pot that we, it, it really looks like something that a woman would have. It, it doesn't look like it was... Uh, the the design doesn't look like any product that men would that use. That somebody would carry on a Coast Guard ship. No, yeah. or, or that the... The locals would have so that was really interesting we mm -hmm. wanted to learn all we could about that so at the end of the expedition we felt we had uh, had a very successful trip collecting a lot of stuff learned a lot about the reef but felt that what we really needed to find the airplane if the airplane was there right. someplace and it should be we would need much better underwater technology than mm. the little ROV, Sibotics ROV that we've been using. Right. Even, even if we'd been able to act, do accurate navigation on it, it, it couldn't go to the depths that we can now see we needed to look at. We needed to look further down the reef slope because it's so steep and so abrupt. Right. We know there's nothing on the shelves because we've looked at the shelves and there's nothing there. So the next time we come back, we need to come back with some real industrial strength um, underwater search capability, which will probably mean a ship designed for underwater search. Right. We need a bigger, dedicated ship, and that's going to be a whole lot more money. Mm. But, um, but 
the information was promising enough that oh yeah every everything that. we're we're finding all this stuff that is supporting the hypothesis that Earhart landed here on this reef. The plane was washed into the ocean. She survived for a time as a castaway. Her bones were later found but misidentified, and now we've got a better handle on those bones. And yeah, it does seem to be uh, consistent with Amelia Earhart. So we're on the right track here. We just need to do more uh, with even better technology. Hmm. As we headed home, kind of all got together and talked about the experience of, of being on the... How, how did you feel about the expedition? How did it go? And one of the interesting things that, that comes up, and this has happened again and again, and the new people were telling me this, and I wasn't surprised to hear it, Everybody that goes there and participates in one of these expeditions at some time has what we call an Amelia moment. Sometimes it happens on the island. Sometimes it happens afterward when you're evaluating stuff. But at some point it hits you that, yeah, this really happened. And what really happened was really terrible. Mm. You you can forget in the excitement of, oh, I found something, or this turned out to be this, and you're happy about that, and you say, yeah, but what we're investigating here was a real tragedy. Yes. This would be a terrible way to die mm -hmm. with a lot of fear and discomfort and pain and and desperation. This is This mm -hmm. is horrible. Every for everybody at some point it hits them that that that's what's going on. Interesting. Here. And uh, whatever the truth is needs to be brought out. Well, you have your work cut out for you with we all the sure, artifacts. We sure had our our work cut out for us as we headed home, and we we started evaluating these artifacts and also trying to figure out what's the next step. What do we need to do? Yeah, what is that piece of equipment? What's 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 the new tech? What what's the better technology? What can we bring out here that will let us go to the depths that we need to go to and find whatever's there? The seventh site, we did what we came to do. We destroyed it. Yeah. <laughs> but but we mm. found the stuff that was there. We didn't find any bones. Mm. But we found a bunch of other stuff that suggests that it's the right place, and this is where Amelia died. But we've got to find that airplane. And to do that, we're going to need something that, that'll do the job. Mm. So we've got to figure out what that is. Uh, the one thing we know about it is it's going to be real, real expensive. Yes. So we're going to have to address that. Mm. But everyone got home safely? Everybody like got home safely. And that, and that is, as a matter of fact, my first priority for any expedition. Any expedition is a success if you bring all the people home in one piece. <laughs> good, so, good. And we did. Well, next time we'll find out what we learned about what we found and what we decided we needed for the next trip. Interesting. Okay. Great. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.